Thank you to everyone who's participated this morning and for the volunteers that are down with the kids today. And uh, a little plug again for the congregational meeting. At that meeting, we're going to be letting people know what's happening with Sanctuary. We're going to be letting people know some plans moving forward, uh, how we're adapting to the regulations. And so members for sure, but if you have some of those questions and want to be a fly on the wall, not literally, but you can come here and uh, we'll be giving out some of that information Tuesday night, 7 p.m. And then we'll be communicating that as we go forward, uh, especially through our weekly email. So I know in these days of rapid change, sometimes people feel that they're a little out of the loop. Uh, don't, don't sweat it. Don't stress it. If you have questions, call the office and we'll do our best to answer those questions. And uh, let's just be kind to one another, full of grace and strive for the unity of the faith. Because I think during this time, this is a testing time for the church, isn't it? It's a testing time for the church to see if we're going to respond with grace and with compassion and in unity. And so that's something we need to continue to strive toward. Okay, speech over, sermon begins. Uh, we're looking at Amos and Amos chapter 8. And uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it on your own yet. Uh, it can be some pretty heavy stuff as we had again today. Uh, I encourage you to maybe read it in a translation that's um, a bit more of a paraphrase phrase even, like the message or something like that, if you want to get a bit of a flow of what's happening from a different angle. So sometimes that's helpful. But the basic breakdown of Amos, chapters 1 and 2, that's the prophecies of Amos. We've kind of covered some of that. Chapters 3 to 6, the sermons of Amos. We got into a little bit of that. Today we cross into chapters uh, 7 through 9. These are the visions of Amos, and he's got a number of them that are very interesting. And today, it's the vision of the basket of ripe fruit, which sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I mean, finally, a beautiful image in Amos. And you picture on your counter a basket of lovely ripe fruit. It's lovely. But it's not actually in Amos, of course. Uh, because this basket of ripe fruit has a dark side. And so it sounds nice, but it's actually quite ominous. And we'll see how that works out. Well, I am a sucker for Okanagan fruit. And some of you know I grew up in the Okanagan Valley of BC. And so whenever I see something in the store, all you have to do is put from the Okanagan on it and I'll buy it. And this happened to me the other day. Literally, we're walking through the grocery store and there's this container of peaches and it says, Okanagan peaches. I grew up in peach land, so I have to buy Okanagan peaches. And it was five bucks. If you know the price of fruit these days, I mean, these were a whole basket thing of peaches for five bucks. I could not pass it up. Got home, was so excited, opened it up. I think there were maybe four good peaches <laughs> within that. And pretty soon I realized that my a uh, basket of $5 discount fruit was actually last chance fruit, right? We discover that sometimes. That's what's happening in the passage. This basket of fruit, this ripe fruit, is actually last chance fruit. And Amos is saying to Israel, you're on your last leg. In fact, I think right now you're ready for the compost. That's about all you're good for. That's what happened with the rest of my peaches, unfortunately. They were only good for the compost. And so when Amos starts talking about ripe fruit, 
He's talking about ripeness, but not in a good way. He's talking about Israel being overdue to be thrown out because they're no longer useful for God's purposes and what he needs them to do in the world. And so it's a description of God's pending judgment. That's what's happening in this passage. Israel, you're ripe, but not in a good way. And I'm getting ready to compost you. That's the message that we find in this passage. And so we have in this passage a description of God's retributive justice. That's an important part of justice. Retributive justice is the repair of justice through a unilateral imposition of punishment. So it's not both sides don't agree to this punishment. One side, the authority side, in this case God, says time is up and punishment is coming. I think in the Bible, though, most of what God is interested in is actually restorative justice. God is mostly interested in restoring relationships, reconciling relationships. And he actually gives a lot of time for people to get their relationships right. Even when you think of the flood and Noah and, and that whole story and the awfulness of it, it took Noah building that ark for how long? And people giving all that time to respond to God's call. And so retributive justice in the hands of God is kind of a last resort, at least the way that I see it in the Bible. God is much more interested in restorative justice. In fact, I would say he's much more interested in redemptive justice. That's what's happening at the cross. That's where God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ. That's where we see justice and mercy meet. It's God's redemptive justice. But there's also occasions for punishment. So we have to ask the question today, why was Israel ripe for this kind of judgment? And we should already know the answer. Because in chapters 1 and 2, Amos lays out the case. It's like he's in a courtroom. He says, for two sins and three, for three sins and four, you're condemned. So in a court, a court of law, if you have two witnesses or three, that's a really strong case. Amos is saying, we've got one in the back just waiting to come forward. You're condemned. You're already judged. Now the hammer was coming down. We've already exceeded the threshold of the burden of proof that you're guilty. And now the hammer's coming down. Hear what it says in the message translation of this passage. Listen to this. You who walk all over the week, you who treat poor people as less than nothing, who say, when's my next paycheck coming so I can go out and live it up? How long till the weekend when I can go out and have a good time? Who give little and take much and never do an honest day's work. You exploit the poor using them. And then when they're used up, you discard them. That's why God was bringing judgment on Israel. They were ripe for the compost because they oppressed the poor. That's why judgment was coming. Well, what is this punishment? And we see this punishment in the passage being twofold. First of all, there are physical consequences and it's quite graphic, isn't it? Bodies everywhere, all this scattering and and uh, it's a terrific, terrible, terrifying scene. So there are physical consequences. And the reality is that Jeroboam II, who was the king during this time, he is the last of the great kings of Israel. So keep that in mind. This is it. This is the end of the northern kingdom 
as anybody knew it. As the Assyrians sweep in, they actually take Israel into captivity and they are lost. We refer to them now as the 10 lost tribes. And no, I don't think they ended up in Great Britain. That's just me. Someone might challenge me on that one. But anyway, we have the 10 lost tribes because of this action, because of the judgment of God, because Israel was not taking care of the poor and the oppressed as God had instructed them. So the Assyrian invasion was seen as the fulfillment of this prophecy, was seen as the fulfillment of God's judgment on Israel for their injustice. The same can be said of Sodom. Anybody heard of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? Maybe? Here's uh, just a bit of honesty. Growing up, I heard that Sodom was destroyed for an entirely different reason. (laughs) The reason I won't get into in detail, but maybe you've heard it too. And then I read the Bible. And in the Bible, it actually says very clearly why Sodom was judged. It says it in Ezekiel chapter 16. You ready for it? Here's what it says. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Is that a surprise to you? That was the sin of Sodom too. So the judgment came upon Sodom for the exact same reason that the judgment came upon Israel in this case, because they forgot the poor and the needy, because they oppressed the vulnerable. Do you sense God's heart? Are you, are you, are you with him on this one? <laughs> uh, because he has such a heart for those who are vulnerable. So there are physical consequences. Israel literally was no more. This is the end of the Northern Kingdom as anyone knew it. But there's also spiritual consequences. In verses 11 and 12, we get a verse that says this, that God was going to set a famine in the land, and it wasn't going to be a famine for like bread and and water. It wasn't going to be a food famine. It was going to be a famine for the word of God. Now, I know a lot of people have grabbed a hold of this verse and applied it today, and usually they apply it this way. They say that there's a famine for good preaching in Canada. Well, I... I want to contest that a little bit. I think there's some good preachers in Canada and there's some good preachers around. I think actually we live in a day and age where we have access to the word of God like we've never had before. It's actually quite amazing. So what is this verse saying to Amos in his context? I think the verse is saying this. This is God's silent treatment. That's the punishment. This is God's silent treatment. God is saying people are going to call out to me. People are going to ask me to intervene, but it's too late. You will hear crickets from God. You will hear nothing. People will be so hungry now to hear from God because they're so desperate, and they will hear nothing. There's going to be a famine for hearing the word of God. And why was this important? Well, because every good Hebrew knows that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That hearing from God was essential to life. So to be cut off from that word is to die. So this is it. These are the consequences of Israel's injustice. Both physically, they're going to be removed and will never be again like they were. And spiritually, they're going to be cut off. And God gave them many opportunities and they didn't listen. And that's where they're at. So... Where did Israel go wrong? 
What was it missing? This is one of the questions we've been asking. What's missing from this scene? Last week, we talked about generosity. And Israel had forgotten to be generous toward others. And by generosity, we don't mean giving a handout to the poor or deciding some philanthropic kind of answer to say, well, we'll give, is it going to be 10% of our gross or our net? That's not what it's about. It's not the letter of the law. Generosity is essential to justice. The problem with Israel is they were harvesting to the edges. They weren't leaving the edges, which were rightfully, rightfully belonged to the poor, to the widow, to the foreigner, to the orphan. And they were harvesting right out. They were maximizing their profits. Now here, I just want to be clear on this. God is not against money. Okay? God is not against wealth. God is not against affluence. That's not the issue here. That's not what's happening. There were lots of wealthy, affluent, influential people in the Bible. We think of Abraham. He was a very wealthy man. You think of even Job, righteous Job, was a very wealthy man. That's not the issue. David, Solomon, remember these guys? They were very wealthy men as well. It got them in trouble a lot, but they had wealth. Even in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea seemed to be among the wealthy elite. Jesus borrowed his tomb for a few days. He didn't need it for very long, but he still borrowed it. Joseph of Arimathea. Think of Lydia, the seller of purple. I mean, this, this was a great, very lucrative industry. There were lots of people that were wealthy. So affluence isn't the problem. Even God said to Israel, I'm going to lead you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to lead you to a place that's going to be prosperous. The problem was that they forgot. In their blessed life, they forgot to give thanks and forgot that the edges of that prosperity belong to those who are most vulnerable. They forgot. That's the issue. And that's always the danger when we have prosperity. I think it's hardest to live for God in prosperous times because we're so tempted just to grab it all for ourselves. And that's what was happening uh, with Israel. But they forgot also another aspect of justice. And that's what I want to talk about briefly today. They failed to be a voice for the poor, for the oppressed and the vulnerable. They forgot about advocacy. They forgot this essential aspect of seeking justice through raising your voice for those who don't have a voice. That is part of the work of justice. And if we're in doubt about that, in terms of biblical justice, let me read just a few verses, and then you can go home and look up all the rest. Here's a few. Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and to the poor. In other words, actually pays attention and hears their stories. I remember when we went down to El Salvador, and I've told some of this story from time to time. We we're involved with a church in El Salvador, and we thought we were going to go down and just build houses for weeks on end, and we were going to solve the housing problem by our great might from Western Canada. And we got down there and realized that the first week was going to be spent just going around hearing the stories of the people who were living either in poverty or in oppression or in persecution. And by the time we got to the building site, we were so humbled by what we had seen and heard. Because part of this giving a voice is to sit in a seat of humility and listen, to listen to the story and to bear witness to the suffering of others. 
Blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and the poor. Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Proverbs 22, do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their cause. So if we remain silent in the end, God will take up the cause. He will become the advocate for the oppressed. So why not get on his side? (laughs) Why not do that now? Why not speak up as the Bible? And we could go on and on. And it's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. We find this spilling into the New Testament. Jesus says this, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And he's talking about those who are most vulnerable. This is Jesus talking. Jesus himself takes on the role of the advocate. He calls the Pharisees to task for being lovers of money and the scribes for devouring widows' houses. He becomes the advocate for taking advantage of their precarious financial and legal situation. So this is on the heart of God, and it's seen through Jesus as well. Even in James, giving instructions to the church. I could go on all day with verses about this. Let me give you one more, just one more. He says this in James 1, 27. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. You sense the heart of God in this? And for justice, not only that passive sense of allowing others to use what's rightfully theirs, but also in this active sense of using our voices to speak up on behalf of those who have no voice. In fact, the very first crisis in the church, the very first crisis that the church in the New Testament faced was because certain widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. It was a justice crisis. And because these widows were being overlooked, they came up with a solution. What did they do? They appointed seven deacons, seven servants, to specifically make sure that these widows were cared for. They didn't appoint the deacons (laughs) to manage the buildings or balance the budget. Now, I know those are good things. And those are important in the modern life of the church. We have to do that. But just keep this in mind. The very first structure of the church was to ensure justice. The very first structure of the church forming the deacons was to take care of the widows and the orphans. That's at the heart of the early church. It should be at our heart still. This is a gospel calling. That's really what I want to say. Sometimes we think the gospel is simply in words and we want to you know, rescue people's souls and get them into heaven. That's important. That's great. But the gospel is so much greater and more exciting and bigger and terrifying and more difficult than all of that because it still involves paying attention to the needs of the people around us in a physical, emotional, practical way. We need to be the agents of justice who care for the oppressed and the vulnerable. So how do we do this? How do we learn from Israel's mistake? How do we become advocates? This is a tricky conversation. It's loaded with political minefields. And so I'm just going to give a bit of a direction and some examples and hope you take up the conversation and wrestle through this. And I'm going to use Tim Keller uh, because he gives us three ways that we can be advocates for the vulnerable. Here's way number one. Provide relief 
to meet material needs. That's one form of advocacy, to provide relief to meet material needs. If you're in doubt about that, go home and read Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan story. And you'll see right in there, part of the way of caring for the neighbor is to provide for their material needs. In fact, as we read in James chapter 2, it says, if one of you says to them, this is a brother or sister coming to you, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is your faith? So part of advocacy is meeting the physical needs of people. First John chapter 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. That's what God is calling us to. I love it that at our youth kickoff a couple of weeks ago, it was a combination between two of our churches. And I think there was like over 70 kids there or something in the parking lot at the other church. And uh, at each kickoff the last couple of years, they've decided to do something in partnership uh, with the mustard seed. And so what Eric did and the other leaders is they went to the mustard seed and said, what do you need? What's a need that we can help you with right now? And they said, men's underwear. Something we all need. <laughs> right, Samuel? So men's underwear was their need. That's the need that they were facing. And so Eric and the youth leader said, that's what we're doing. Admission to the youth group. And that day on that kickoff day is to bring a package of unused men's underwear. And so it was really interesting going through the checkout line with my daughter as she was buying uh, men's underwear. Not the kind that, I, anyway, we won't get into that. But, but there's a provision for physical need. But do you hear what they did? They asked first. I think so often when we go to try and provide for the physical needs of others, we assume first. <laughs> they asked first. I love also that our mission team with this brown bagging for Calgary kids, they looked around and said, what's something that's needed in our, our community? And they were surprised to find that hundreds of kids are hungry in our schools every day that there's a school day. And they said, what can we do? Well, there's a program where we can provide for the physical needs of the, of the school. Do you see what they did? They asked first, what can they do? Jesus did the same thing when he goes up to the man that's lying by the pool of Salome, wanting to be thrown in. And he goes to the man, what would you like me to do for you? What a gracious thing to do as we're trying to help out. And this is part of the start of advocacy is providing relief to the material needs, but listening first. Okay, a second aspect to advocacy is to empower people towards sustainability. So this goes beyond relief, and it goes on to empowering others. There's a fascinating passage in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Mark it down somewhere, go home and read it, because it talks all about uh, the year of Jubilee. This idea that people, even if they got themselves into debt for, from their own uh, mistakes, they were to be released from their debt at a certain time. <laughs> and every seven years, for sure, and the 50th year was the big celebration of Jubilee. And so it says this in Deuteronomy 15. If any of your people sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in other words, they're in debt, they're going to pay it off by working to, uh, for you for free, basically. If any of you, your people sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, 
In the seventh year, you must let them go free. But listen to this. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord God has blessed you. Do you hear that? Don't just set them loose because they're just going to fall back into the same trap of poverty and they'll be back serving you for another six years. No, set them up for success. Give them what they need so they can succeed on their own so that they're not in this cycle of dependence or cycle of debt or trapped in a cycle of poverty. Set them up for success. When we lived on the lower mainland and we had the church plant Um, we partnered with a ministry downtown Eastside, Vancouver. And it was run from one of our churches down there, and it was called Just Work. And so it's it's a play on that word justice, and so they wanted to provide just work for people on the downtown east side of Vancouver. And so they had a number of different ways that people could gain marketable skills by either a gardening project or a pottery project. And so I actually, I brought show and tell today. How exciting is that? Do you remember when you were a kid and you were so excited to bring show and tell? So um, our church plant, we had a coffee shop in uh, White Rock that provided employment for um, adults with uh, various disabilities, as well as teens trying to get employment, all that kind of stuff. We decided to partner with Just Potters on the downtown east side, and they made us all these very custom mugs. So these are people living on the downtown east side. They learn a trade and they sold it to us, and we paid full price, right? Because that's what you got to do. Is there's no discounts here if you're going to help people to get ahead. And so we, so if you came into our coffee house, every single mug was handcrafted by someone on the downtown east side, and you could turn it over, and you'd see their initials of whatever the new potter was. That's what empowerment is about, of giving people these skills so that they're not constantly dependent. I could go on story after story of what I've seen around the world uh, through Canadian Baptist Ministries in trying to do this. So that's another level of advocacy. So we start by meeting the needs and relief, but we have to move on to empowerment. But here's the third. Here's the third level of advocacy, by far the hardest, by far far the most uh, difficult to navigate. And it's this. I believe we are also called to challenge the structures that perpetuate oppression. That's a tough one. So I'm going to take a drink. (laughs) Listen to what Job said. And and remember, Job was a righteous man, right? We understand it wasn't because of his sin that he faced all the calamities that he faced. He was a righteous man. And he defends himself in Job 29 by saying this. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. And then listen, I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I broke the fangs. I didn't just rescue them. I actually broke the fangs of the wicked so they couldn't harm them again. I I stopped the oppression at the source. That's one of the things Job says. And that's what we find actually uh, throughout Scripture, and it's, it's a little more subtle to us because we don't always see it in the New Testament. But the New Testament church is doing it all the time. Jesus, in fact, he calls out the patronage system that everybody was operating according to in the New Testament times. The patronage system is, I'm going to invite people to my house for a dinner because I know if I scratch their back, they're going to scratch my back. 
So I'm going to invite the people that have the means to pay me back when I need it. And Jesus said, stop it. Bring people to your table who can't scratch you at all, (laughs) who can't benefit you at all. Start bringing people to the table from the streets, from wherever. And it's, it's kind of a, it's a metaphor, but it was also very much a reality. Jesus was trying to stop the system that kept people from the table and trying to invite them in. Uh, Paul, and I know sometimes we talk about uh, slavery in the New Testament. That's a whole other conversation that we have to have. But Paul, he actually calls out what he calls the man traders. The man traders are those who gain slaves by kidnapping. And so he calls out, he's saying there's an injustice here at the source. We need to stop it. James, James calls out the church for showing favoritism to the wealthy. When they came in, you know, you sit here because you have nice clothes and, and you guys, you're away at the back, Doug. That's why we put them there. And so you just don't want to show favoritism and James calls it out. So do you see that even in the New Testament, although it might be subtle to us, even though they were in a largely powerless state because of who they were, they were still speaking truth to power. They were still speaking up and advocating. I love Amos chapter 4. Amos 4, there's some nasty words spoken in Amos chapter 4. Amos calls attention to the cows of Bashan. I'm sure it is an incredibly derogatory term that probably shouldn't be repeated in a religious context, but this cows of Bashan, let me read it to you in another translation. Amos says this, Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. Wow, Amos, easy buddy. Like he, he just tells it like it is, doesn't he? What's he doing? He's, he's calling attention to this system where people have become so comfortable in their affluence that is on the backs of the oppressed and the poor. We have to ask ourselves the same question. We enjoy so many good things. How many of those things come at the expense of others? That's what we're asking in advocacy. So how does this work? How do we draw attention to, call out, and address systemic causes of injustice? Let me give you, as we close up the sermon today, because I know I've gone a little longer, getting all fired up. Um, But let me just give you an illustration of how this might work, because it's an illustration that's really stuck in my mind, and I hope it's helpful to you. Imagine that you're down at the river. Okay, is everybody there? And it's a very fast-flowing river. Okay? And you see someone coming down the river in distress. They're drowning. They're in the process of flailing and calling for help. Now, a little disclaimer. A lot of people have actually, very sadly, uh, drowned in Alberta this last year. And some of those people are those who jumped in to try and save others. So let me just say, you're at the river, but you're prepared. (laughs) Uh, So you are able, you have the ability safely to retrieve the person from the water. And you do so. You go out there and you get them, you bring them on the shore. They're safe. It's wonderful. It feels good to save a life. Just as you're getting them dried up off, though, you realize there's another guy in the river. And so you go again. This time you've got a couple of guys to help you, and you've got a rope and some life jackets. You get out there, and, and you realize this is a regular occurrence, this crazy point in the river. There are regularly people who are in need. And so you organize a whole team. You train them. 
You get resources and you're plucking people out of the river. That is so good. Congratulations. I mean, that is stage one advocacy. Maybe even stage two advocacy because you're not only meeting a physical need, now maybe you're training others to help meet that need. One day you go down to the river and you have an epiphany. The light goes on. And you ask yourself the question, why are these people falling in the river? And you decide with your team to wander upstream and you discover that the bridge going across is all busted up. It's worn. And as people try and cross it, they fall through and into the river. What's your course of action now? Fix the bridge. Fix the bridge. What's the source? What's the systemic source that's causing people to fall again and again in the river? Go upstream. That's what advocacy calls us to do, and that's probably the hardest part of it. I'm not giving any easy solutions or any easy answers. That has got to be the hardest part of advocacy. As we think about our, our own situation here in Canada and our indigenous communities who are struggling for years and generations to have fresh water, we need to make sure that they have fresh water. But we also have to ask the bigger questions. Why are they in that situation in the first place? What are the systemic reasons that they've found themselves trapped in that situation? Or we think of homelessness and those who experience homelessness on the street. We absolutely need to meet their physical need. We need to try and provide resources so that they can take care of themselves. But we also have to ask the question, how did they get there in the first place? What is happening within our society that perpetuates this cycle of homelessness? Even the refugee situation. And I'm so grateful that our mission team, again, they're going to be presenting uh, two uh, teenage girls from Syria who are now in Lebanon that we're planning to bring over to reunite with their family who are here in Queensland. And, and it's going to be a process and we're going to get behind it and, and do that. And that's important to provide that. But we also have to ask, why are people in that situation a refugee? And is there anything we can do about it? That's the challenge of advocacy. And if you're in doubt whether the Bible actually asks us to do that, again, let me read Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And if we don't, God will take up their cause and we will stand in judgment. That's the message of Amos. Israel forgot a lot of things and they forgot their role of advocacy in the cause of justice. And it led to the downfall of their entire society because they forgot God's laws and God's heart for the poor. There's a, a famous quote been attributed to a lot of people. I'll end with this. The true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, first of all, that you'd help us to have a sense of your spirit and your heart for this world. Help us also to, in humility, to listen to others, to hear and respond to their needs. Father, help us to fulfill the, the gospel call on our lives, that in word and in our deeds, that we might see people come to know you and be freed from the oppression that they face. Give us wisdom and give us courage 
and the stamina to follow after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.